welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Data.ai, the industry's most trusted mobile data intelligence and analytics platform. With Data.ai, you can access estimates for downloads, revenue, engagement, and retention for millions of apps and games on the iOS and Google Play stores. And you can take it a step further and drill down into granular competitive sets with their Game IQ taxonomy. Also with Data.ai, mobile games publishers can track competitors, prioritize features, assess monetization models, monitor market share, explore demographics, improve app store optimization, and much more. You can learn more at data.ai or check out the link in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have some excellent panelists, as always. We got Dave Elton and Jonathan Anastas with us today. How are you guys doing? Doing well, awesome. thank you. Doing well. Yeah, living the life. Awesome. Awesome. We'll, 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 we'll get that into a good, lively discussion then. See, see how well you guys are actually doing. Uh, when we get into the topics, uh, we have so we have a good variety today for just only having a, a few people. We've got some fundraising coming from Play Ventures yet again. Gran Turismo uh, doing uh, okay to start off with here at the box office. It looked like maybe Savvy Group might have been the culprit behind Embracer's deal falling apart uh, for two billion dollars. So we'll get into that. Zynga surprised everyone here with its Web three game announcement from their ZW three division, as they call it now, and Netflix teasing a bit more into the cloud gaming uh, with uh, some controllers and things going on. We'll start off with the fundraising. We like to talk about money first, right? So let's get into Play Ventures here. Excellent. Well, you know, in this world and backdrop of negative stories around VC and negative stories around funding and how hard it is to raise money and put capital into play, it's, it's great to see good news. And, and gaming generally has been an overperform, you know, in this category. It's not been as dire as some other categories. It's been a bright spot in the world of investing. But it's nice to see that Play Ventures, you know, announced through an SEC filing that $78 million for Fund 3 uh, has been raised. They didn't reveal the total fund size. For those not familiar, Play Ventures is a Singapore-based company born in 2018. Funds 1 and 2 led to over 100 investments across gaming studios, content, platforms, mostly early stage. They hit my radar when I moved to Singapore for one championship in 2019. And they sort of embody that, you know, sort of like hyper-capitalist, like, you know, look forward, you know, strong view of like Singapore-based companies. And it, it sort of they're, where they're based and their sort of like action in the marketplace fit very well to me. Um, Fund One claims 66% internal returns, which is much better than the average and 1.5x distro in four years. Their exits have included rework, uh, Savage Gaming Studios, Fun 2 has Odeo and Loop Deck. So I, I'm very bullish, you know, on Fun 3, and I'm very bullish on Play Ventures. And I've said to anyone who will listen in all this, like, doom and gloom around fundraising and VC, that gaming is a place to keep putting your money, and it's it's an overperform. So I think you see another indication of the positivity in the marketplace around gaming and another indication of the success around Play Ventures. So 
you know, not a surprise, but certainly great news and, and, and happy to report on it. Yeah, I was very happy to see that, especially given, you know, how, how tight money is, how expensive money is these days, that we are still seeing some, some new funds come about. I'm even, you know, still seeing even some Web3 funds, new Web3 funds, Devin. Gotta love those. Yeah, probably not through an SEC filing, though. <laughs> But uh, I mean, yeah, it's good to, good to see the money still going around. I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious. Like they they reported on Fund One. Uh, is there any indication how Fund Two's been doing? I've not seen any data. My guess is that Fund Two is too early to sort of you know, given sort of the timing on exits. Uh, we're really working off the performance of Fund One. I think Fund Two is less than two years old, so it'd be surprising to have a huge number of exits at this point. But uh, you know they've got great buzz in the marketplace, both globally and in Singapore, and are a big part of the Singapore tech and VC world. Like they sort of feel like they're everywhere when you're in country. So uh, you know the vibe around them remains highly positive. Is there any indication, like based off like the trends from Fund One and Two in the current environment, where they might deploy some of Fund Three? Like like just based off the patterns that they've had and, and what you know about them as a company? I personally, you know, they, they seem to be. Early stage is like the only indicator, right? They go broad. They go tech. They go data. They go studio. So really, the only indicator is early stage versus later stage. You know, like stage seems very focused. Uh, you know, sector seems fairly broad. Cool. Well, I do hope some of it gets sliced off for Web3, as Dave said, but uh, may- maybe not. I mean, I-, I don't know if I don't know if the AI booms are already done, if, if the slice will get cut off for that or AI and games. Uh, obviously, is doing quite well. We've seen some of that still lately. So, uh, I mean, it's good for games, right? Like this is definitely a, a tough market when it comes to mobile and uh, budgets and things like that. Like there's a lot of headwinds. So it's, this is, as you guys said, very positive news to have that, you know, keep going uh, and moving forward. Uh, speaking of moving forward, uh, Gran Turismo, a, a video game centric movie. What a surprise as of late, but a kind of a different one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, been interesting to follow uh, this particular one. And it's a slightly different take in terms of bringing a, a video game franchise into the big screen. Um, so the, the news story that's been coming around is that uh, you know, Gran Turismo has opened up in some international markets uh, over the last weekend. Um, grossing what was considered a decent amount at uh, $10.7 million. Um, you know, France was the top uh, top market, followed by the UK, Australia, and Germany. Um, and the film is planning on opening up inside the United States uh, on August 25th. So instead of being you know, that, that fictional tale, it's actually based on a true story of a Gran Turismo player uh, being given the opportunity to race uh, real cars in real life. Um, you know, if we were to take a look at, uh, some of the comparisons inside, uh, the film space, obviously the big ones, you know, people would be playing out, uh, Super Mario Brothers, uh, and how well it's done at $1.3, uh, billion as of, uh, last weekend. Um, if you're looking for a direct movie, uh, comparison in terms of racing, Need for Speed, a franchise near and dear to my heart, uh, it had an overall box office of $203 million. Um, with, uh, if you're doing a comparison, uh, it's opening weekend in international markets was $45.6 million as compared to the 10, but the markets, uh, for need for speed are a lot broader than what Gran Turismo opened into. Um, and you know, the, the concept of bringing IP into the movie theater or into the small screens, um, certainly has been in the news a lot recently, you know, as as we mentioned, you know, Super Mario Brothers has done an amazing 
uh, box off return this year. Uh, the Last of Us on TV has been a, a you know definitely a critically acclaimed show uh, for HBO. Um, you know, but not all companies are rushing to take all of their IP to the big screen. Uh, Take-Two's CEO, Strauss Zelnick, was quoted this week as saying, you know, that there's really a, a relatively small economic opportunity and that for every Super Mario Brothers or Last of Us, there's been a number of films that uh, have not done well. Now, it doesn't mean that Take-Two is completely out of the picture in terms of bringing their IP to, you know, multiple mediums, uh, as they have both a Borderlands movie coming out in partnership with Lionsgate, uh, as well as a Bioshock movie. Um you know, and I think one of the biggest concerns, is, as uh, Zelnick pointed out, was that um, you know taking your your cherished IP, the thing that you've spent years, uh, in some cases even decades, um, you know, uh, crafting a fantastic franchise and fantastic experience for the players, is that you're really taking that IP out of your hands and in the control of somebody else's hands, and um, you know sometimes there's a little bit worry about how things happen you know how things end up in that translation as well from a video game format into a non-interactive format being movie or TV but it'll be interesting to see how uh, Gran Turismo does perform in the US when uh, when it opens up uh, uh, in a few weeks yeah I, I definitely think uh, it has potential to at least make its money back uh, I mean it's it's made on a budget of about 40 million supposedly which is I mean they, they've obviously spent some more on marketing things like that but 40 million is actually relatively cheap for a movie these days um, it probably helps that that they had uh, Neil Blomkamp do it which he's going to do low budget stuff District 9 being kind of his big claim to fame so it's like you know I guess with a movie like that that kind of brings to, to mind the idea that like hey if you're not really sure how it will do it, you know come in with a low budget like that i mean that budget alone is less than the game's cost to make right so like Absolutely. it's cheaper to go transmedia with that and it becomes like a very long commercial for the game uh so that you know and it kind of becomes marketing budget for it i mean i do wonder how involved uh you know the the game makers might have been uh, i i do know from watching some of the behind the scenes promotion with it that the um the stunt driver for the main character of the game is the actual person the movie's based on uh so so you're still able to be involved in the film which is awesome you actually get to see him drive in the movie the real person so uh some some cool tie-ins there and on the audio side uh i know the 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 team that helped out with uh, some of the audio in the movie uh, a fantastic team who has done amazing work when it comes to automotive audio uh both in games and in commercials and film and tv um, so I have no doubt that the film will actually sound really, really good, uh, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the biggest successes in this space have been big swings, right? Like the most famous gaming IP with the biggest budgets behind them, with the biggest marketing pushes behind them, done at a super high level. You know, the worrisome thing here to me, or there are a couple of worrisome things, is like, A, I think it's running like a 47 Metacritic, right? That's too early for a Rotten Tomato score, which is a little bit worrying. B, the world doesn't seem to have a lot of place for $40 million movies anymore, right? It's either like, you know, 10 exit on your $10 million movie or crush it on your billion dollar movie. And I'm going to give you a very interesting piece of Los Angeles zeitgeist around this movie, which actually may kind of tie to you know, the budget level, which is like, so we become, for those people who don't live in Los Angeles, who spend a lot of time here. We spend a lot of time marketing to ourselves and the people that make the films and outdoor, right? So like, you can kind of get a sense of where the bets are by driving through Hollywood, West Hollywood, the Sunset Strip and seeing like who has the sides of buildings, you know, who has the biggest billboards. 
And here's what I will say about the Gran Turismo billboards I've seen. They are small billboards. They are not like the heroic billboards. They are not wallscapes. And that is often indicative of the studio's belief in the movie, right? To some degree, it's indicative of the budget, but to, to another degree, it's, it, it's indicative of the belief. And so when I walk around and I don't see like the side of a building on sunset and I see like a regular old fashioned billboard on like La Brea, I see diminished expectations. And then there was also like the last minute switch off their US date and like not sure what that flinch was about. But, you know, the, the sort of like person driving through Los Angeles POV, you know, is like zeitgeist isn't huge on this. I think the uh, the report was in regards to the switch in in, in date uh, inside the United States was the hope for getting some buzz around the film internationally, and then using that to help create sort of a bit of an upswell in terms of positive PR for the movie before launching. Um, has it reached that? Uh, I, I not with the Rotten Tomato score. Yeah, not with yeah. that at least. The 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 positive side though is the delay does set them up to not really have much competition box office because Barbie and Oppenheimer yeah. will be done by that point. Blue Beetle probably won't carry yeah. very far into that, and there's not really much else. I don't think Strays is going to be competing with it. <laughs> so it, it's it may just have it to itself. I mean, normally like dump seasons like January, February, right? Like this is clearly not like a dump kind of thing. No, but as you said, it may be like low faith but low budget. So it's one of those situations yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's like it's one of those things where probably just makes its money back at plus a little and it's it's fine but obviously we're like swimming in transmedia now so this is like gonna be par for the course i I mean even if this movie tanks i don't think they like give up on video game movies anytime soon right we just continue to like wade into this until we end up with like the original super mario brothers movie then then we back off again for a while i think at that point uh for for you know but it's like uh look how long it took for marvel fatigue to kind of set in right like so I think there's definitely some some runway uh, for this kind of continued thing to, to happen. Obviously, like some will be much bigger budgets, some will make much more money, and it'll be like kind of varied. But I don't I don't think this is like a terrible bet, and it's for at least fans of the game probably like exciting to watch just for them to think like maybe, maybe that could be me. Oh, totally. And I don't think it's a terrible bet. It's it's funny that you bring that up about what's happened with Transmedia because it feels like exactly that to me. It feels kind of like a 2010s play at transmedia like you're trying to like leverage some ip and keep the budget down and like and like hit a double and win right like that's like the 2010 model uh like the 2010 to 2015 model of like transmedia and then we got into like big swings right where all of a sudden transmedia was like shooting for like marvel size wins or dc size wins so it feels like a return to og like diminished expectations but diminished risk yeah but i think even you know looking at Take two's approach, like they're willing to take some of their, I mean, granted, like big franchises, but not their top line franchises, right? Like it's Bioshock and Borderlands, not Red Dead Redemption or, you know, Grand Theft Auto that they're looking at licensing out. So it is interesting to see sort of where, where companies are putting their bets in terms of what they're willing to license out and see what kind of returns they can get on it. But. I'm really getting the impression that nostalgia plays or like uh, fan service 
are a big part of like some of the successes. Obviously, Mario was like a ton of fan service, right? Like there was just references all over the place, tons and tons of them, you know, so that you could rewatch it even and see new things potentially. That seems like a key thing, like we're seeing just across a lot of media. I mean, a lot of like old reboots coming back, a lot of people trying to play off that stuff, you know, sometimes landing it, sometimes not, but sometimes it's, it's people that were, you know, fans of it originally. Sometimes it's people that were involved. And so it seems like if they can kind of keep up that sort of thing where it's like, we know our audience, we know what they want. We can also bridge a little bit for a new audience. Like, you know, Illumination handling, for example, Super Mario Brothers, they're, they're generally going for a younger audience, right? So they could bring in the younger audience, so they could have fun. But then obviously like a ton of the movie was for a much older audience, nostalgia wise. Yeah. Gran Turismo is kind of in a weird spot, right? Where it's like, maybe not so much for some of the older audience, maybe some of them like that are, you know, the car fanatics or people that like grew up maybe in some of the old Gran Turismo's, uh, but, but not like a super young audience either. So like that might be a trickier demographic, but it does seem like if you know your audience for these ones and you could just play to that fan service, that seems to have been like most of the successes out there outside of like, I'd say like Disney's live action reboots is probably the, the worst fan service I've seen. I, yeah. I totally agree, and it's interesting, right? Because if you go to that point, like, to me, Gran Turismo was about this, like, culty, hardcore automotive IP where, like, they actually got credit for, like, when Nissan finally brought the Skyline, the GTR, to America, right? Like, the 100% awareness of that vehicle was from the game, right? Like, the Gen I thought it was y, Fast and Furious. And, and, like, the Gen Y people buying it you know, knew it from the game. And actually that's, that's why I think that it was like a little weird that they kind of went for a different story instead of a game-based narrative that they went for this sort of real life story that like runs parallel to the game. But back to your point about fan service, right? Like I am the prime audience for like Top Gun, right? And when you wanted a Top Gun, it was full fan service. There's the Ninja 900, 1985. There's the black Porsche watch, right? Like there's the shirtless, you know, on the beach ball. Like, Sports scene, like they had, like they hit all the beats, right? And it's like serve the old audience who brought their kids. And, and, and I agree with you. I think like that's that, that sort of like hitting the touchstones and both being reverential and nodding to the past while also sort of moving the narrative forward is like the perfect formula. Yeah, I was just looking at the box office numbers the other day and Maverick actually still edged out a little bit over Mario Brothers just by like uh, about a hundred million or so. Uh, so like, yeah, it's, it's working, right? Like obviously not everyone's going to work, right? Some of them aren't going to land and some of them just maybe won't have the right audience to come out to the theaters and stuff. But it seems like just serve the fans what they want. Like the classic, like a mix of the old and the new and like everyone's happy. Like, I mean, I don't think we're going to see like a crash bandicoot movie anytime soon, but you never know. No, and, but that's the whole thing. It's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a little side about, about Maverick. I arbitraged it. I went out and bought a Ninja 900 six months before the movie came out and sold it three months after the movie came out and made 40%. So like... <laughs> You're like those Air Force recruiters that were hanging out in the lobby. Yeah. <laughs> so like it kickstarted like all that fan service. Well, maybe there needs to be more business models built up around scooping that up like you were, yeah. right? Where it's like, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the new Super Mario Brothers game, right? The Wonder You, whatever got announced like not too far after the movie, right? So it got to capitalize a bit yep. on that. And I think those sorts of things where if they set up like their plays 
like to follow it up. Like if Gran Turismo is like, hey, I hope you enjoyed the movie. By the way, we've got a new game coming out. Like those kinds of uh, of moves like could really turn this into a, a actually a fairly cheap commercial. Totally. Uh, like on the sc- grand scale of things, right? Like if you just time it right, obviously it could be hard, right? And now we're in a, a bit of a problematic area when it comes to some of the transmedia because of the, the writer's strike and, and all that stuff that sort of like really put a huge amount of delay in, in Hollywood productions and stuff like that. So I, I got to imagine like maybe we won't see like an onslaught of it. There'll be like probably a little bit of gap, like, like we saw from COVID as well, where we just get these kind of like hiccups. Uh, so it, it may take some time, but. Uh, All right. I'm, I'm going we'll to make a, I'm going to call a trend shot here. Yeah. The new transmedia play. If the writer strike last is rebooting as non, as non-scripted. Right. Like <laughs> in what ways could you non-script all this IP? Right? Spring all the, like, the, the, uh, all the, the improv style actors in. See? No, but I mean oh, like, what, which ones could you turn into reality shows? Like, like, right. like Gran Turismo post writer strike is an actual racing competition. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, that was going to say like the actual <laughs> source material for yeah. the movie. You actually just turn that into a yeah. TV show. You get a whole yeah, bunch of exactly. gamers competing and then put them in real cars. If you remember with COVID, NASCAR had actual drivers playing the game during COVID when people weren't racing, right? So take that mindset, take that COVID mindset and apply it to a writers and actors strike. (laughs) I I think, you know, you then expand that out and you have your new cooking show that first off you play cooking mama and then you go and do real cooking (laughs) and see who does better, the gamers versus real chefs. We'll see that maybe as like a, a Netflix show or something instead of a movie. <laughs> you know, you never know. But I mean, like we'll get to the Netflix uh, part later on too, which which goes the other direction, right? So that should be really interesting to dive into, like as a big contrast uh, to that. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of cool stuff on this topic, and I, and I imagine like some of the other topics we've been talking about lately. One that's going to come up quite often, and in fact, it's going to be mentioned again. I think here uh, a couple of times throughout this episode. Uh, in terms of a couple different topics. So like, I, you know, I, I'm excited to see some of the good ones. Obviously I expect uh, some, there will be some bad ones, right? Like I'm not expecting uh, Uwe Boll to come out of retirement or anything. And uh, that tax loophole is closed. So probably won't get any of those kind of productions anymore, but you never know, right? Like we've, we've definitely had these sort of heydays for video game movies where they were like big for a minute. And then like after a couple flops, people kind of backed off. Uh, to be fair, though, some of those weren't so great. And that was like in the earlier days when they didn't really know how to fan service it all that well. And it didn't have the rich history because video games were newer, right? Like Mario Brothers wasn't that old at that time. Now Mario Brothers had a rich history to fan service. And so I think that is probably going to be a little bit differentiator. But I mean, we've got like the Twisted Metal TV show at this point. Like yeah. it's all over the place, right? Like this one we, we barely even mentioned. Uh, so even, it's that even, pervasive now. Even recently, though, they certainly have been some missteps. I, I think most people remember the Sonic Mouth issue. <laughs> what, they, fixed Sonic, that. They, they fixed that. They fixed Sonic it. Mouth. Yes, but it was. I mean, they had to, given the amount of blowback that they received from the fans when fans saw that, and it was just like, "What are you doing?" Like, that it was became a great joke in another fan service movie, though the Rescue Rangers one. That was so. Like, it actually even got used in another fan service thing so it's yeah it's you know if they roll with it i think there's there's recoverability and that proved that like it actually was probably a good idea to get it out there early get some reaction from the fans and see whether or not you're headed in the right direction with time to correct it obviously it probably was not cheap to correct it that quickly uh but it worked right like in that movie got a sequel and i'm sure it's i'm pretty sure it has a greenlit third one so i mean it's keeping jim carrey busy so at least there's that right Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is definitely an example of a very successful uh, 
case where where a property has been brought to uh, to film and done really well. And that's one that like it seems like it would be pretty hard to turn into a movie. If you think about it, right? Like that one really doesn't lend itself to a whole lot of like story. I mean, not not. I mean, to be fair, there's like Sonic Adventure games and there's like the comics and all that. But let's be honest. Like uh, after like three or four different cartoons with no coherent plot, I don't think they were going to come up with a a movie with a coherent one very easily. So, uh, I mean, kudos to the writers on that one for for pulling it off. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've also got some other like transmedia related IP here uh, related to Savvy Gaming Group and uh, their sort of participation in Embracers Fun. Yeah, so the history here is this is kind of like new information on old news, right? So if you go way back to the history, about the middle of 2022, Savvy in their sort of acquisition investment spree bought about an 8% stake in Embracer, I think for about a B, about a billion dollars. And it appears that that proceeds was used to buy Lord of the Rings IP, uh, limited run games, Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, right? You know, that money was spent sort of expanding the Embracer IP, you know, catalog. And then, you know, Savvy buys Scopely for about $5 billion. And, you know, in, 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 in the giant picture, the Saudi fund is committed about $38 billion to gaming. So that, that's the backstory, right? And then I think, May, Embracer sort of notes that a party had pulled out, they do some reorganization, they do some layoffs, they shut some things down, but they don't name the party. The new news is that apparently, unconfirmed, Savvy was the party that pulled out. Apparently, the deal terms were about $2 billion. It was a dev deal this time, not an investment deal. It appears they were going to commit about $2 billion to dev investment, so cash, but, you know, not buying more equity over, I think, about a six-year term. And it came at the end of, like, seven, eight months of negotiation, right? So a hard-fought deal that apparently, like, went south at the 11th hour. Now, the good news for Embracer is Amazon is still going to publish Tomb Raider, but there wasn't any color on, like, why Savvy pulled out. It's unclear, right? It was kind of indicated, if you believe what you're reading, that it was the 11th hour, you know, the Golem game was blasted for, you know, having terrible reviews. It released after a lot of delays. Was that related? Was that not related? You know, I'm, I'm sure as an investor, they were aware of all that. So that doesn't seem like the reason. So that doesn't seem like a lot of color. Why? You know, normally you might say, okay, Savvy's saving the powder for like, you know, another Scopely type deal. But again, if you believe the $38 billion, like another $2 billion isn't going to keep you from buying something else. So was it sort of like a strategic fit issue? Was it like, you know, at some point they're trying to figure out how to put these assets together, you know, and, and matching dev need with like IP and release schedule and didn't make a lot of sense. You, you know, no color on that. But, you know, we, we have a little bit more information on, you know, the gut punch that Embracer took. I got to wonder if the, um, the silence on it was that because it was just something dumb. It's something no one really wants to readily admit to, or we'll find out about it in a tell-all book in 20, 30 years from now from someone at Savvy or Embracer, what I, what exactly happened. I, I do wonder if that deal like started off too partially after seeing how much money like Amazon, speaking of Amazon, was spending on their Lord of the Rings show, like where it was just like, oh, cool. Is this also going to be a transmedia play that's like a big uh, commercial for this, for, you know, these franchises to go. And then it's like that got some backlash and then like the Golem game. And it's like, maybe it was just a situation where they just felt like mm, maybe Lord of the Rings isn't going to carry into the future as, as much as we hope it would. Or maybe they just like saw a better investment. We're just like, you know, actually we could spend this 2 billion over here. Like, cause they're, they're kind of throwing money around a lot of the time. Right. Like 
uh, so a situation where they just might have saw a deal with better returns, perhaps. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how the deal was structured to know what kind of like backouts they could do and stuff like that. Right, right. And, and by the way, we also don't know how much of that $38 billion has actually landed with Savvy or how, how much access Savvy has to, you know, what percentage of that 38 be, right? I guess we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at a lot of their investment, it's certainly been on the strategic side where they've done investments in Nintendo and Electronic yeah. Arts and uh, Activision. You know, they're certainly looking at where can they put their money in, in those safe bets. Um, and, you know, got to wonder, you know, as you guys were saying, was it a case of the, they saw the potential for a different bet to make? rather than Embracer. You know, Embracer has certainly seen a lot of growth, but that has been through, you know, know, acquisition. It's been through M&A rather than through organic. Um, And maybe the question started coming up, you know, are they going to see enough of a return in in backing uh, something like Embracer? Yeah, like I said, I I imagine we'll find out like at some point, right? Because this, even this detail, right? Like slowly, eventually came out. It was just a mystery before. So, you know, it's it's a question of whether or not like it's exciting enough to talk about when we actually do find out, right? Uh, whether anyone cares at that point. But it is a pretty big deal, right? Because that's when we saw Embracer kind of like start to go into like the sort of restructuring mode. And now they've just, you know, closed down their internal studios, I believe. And it's just, it's been like not a lot of great news from Embracer since then. I mean, it hasn't been the worst either, right? They don't, they don't look like in this huge downturn or anything, but they've had to like, you know, write the ship a little bit since then when it was just like, okay, that money is not going to come in. Uh, I mean, we don't know if that was like directly the reason why they did a bunch of stuff, but it, it the timing definitely speaks to like, okay, well, maybe we were hoping on that to kind of keep things going the way they were going, but it's not going to happen. So we got to like adjust things a bit, uh, but that's prudent, right? Like it, it's good that they did that, that they didn't just be like, well, we'll find another 2 billion somewhere else, right? Like yeah. uh, it seems like that was the smart move. Yeah, now's not the time to be wishing on easy money coming in. Uh, you know, companies certainly are going to be looking at you know, how can they um, you know, continue to uh, grow in the right areas uh, and, and really look to conserve their cash in the other areas where they're not seeing that that potential for growth or, or having the, the potential for being a bit of an anchor for for a company. Um, and and it's, you're seeing it across the board, you know, it's not just inside game studios. Uh, you know, Disney right now is going through a big thing of should they spin out all of their uh, TV stations and, and get them out? Uh, from underneath Disney. So, you know, it, it's it's affecting, you know, not just the small to medium-sized companies inside the games industry. It's affecting everybody. Well, maybe uh, Embracers should start talking to Play Ventures and see if they can get a slice up on three, <laughs> right? For, for their next game. <laughs> you know, because there's money floating around, right? And that's what it comes down to is a lot of this is like just deciding where to put it because, you know, even when inflation happens, inflation's happening because there's lots of money around. Like, so there's definitely the money to be spent. And obviously like, uh, you know, Saudi investment has been pretty huge. Uh, it sounds like there's still money, you know, floating out of there. Uh, we've got, you know, companies like A16Z with, with apparently money cannons. So it's just a question of like, whether or not you can be attractive enough in like this environment where it's like people are, at least sounds like doing a lot more due diligence, uh, you know, that's obviously what's hurting Web3, right? Is is now everyone's actually being like, wait, have you made a game before? <laughs> like those kinds of questions are now being asked. And so that sort of like, um, you know, magnifying glass on these deals may, you know, cause more deals to fall through. Uh, but there's still money to go around, right? So money has to be deployed. There's still a lot of uh, venture capital, even like it going into to Web3 eventually that was like mandated to, but just hasn't been. So it's it seems like we're in kind of a weird timing point 
for games, right? Like games yeah. are in kind of like a little tough spot. There's still money to be deployed. There's still technology that's really cool. There's there's platforms. Uh, and, and some of the consoles are like a little bit in their later stages now. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with cloud gaming. Like there's, it seems like a lot of question marks, which of course, you know, part of what this podcast is for, uh, to discuss those question marks as often as possible. But uh, I, I am interested to see how this kind of develops over the next year when it comes to funding in general, because it seems like some of it's going to have to get figured out or people are just going to have to place some bets, right? Yeah. yeah. And do expect those to happen. Like the, no one's expecting the industry to contract. Like everyone now is expecting the industry to continue on growing um, at, a, at a much more reasonable rate than I think what people saw uh, over COVID and, and unfortunately had some um, unfortunate comparisons in place, both uh, in terms of, you know, expecting the COVID bump to continue lasting as well as uh, those that, uh, you know, came back more to reality, which comparatively was still on a, on a proper uh, growth path, but comparative to COVID was uh, certainly down from expectations. So it certainly has been challenging time, but I think we're slowly getting back to a little bit more of a normal, uh, Is it, normalized. You mean the new normals? <laughs> sure. The new, new, new normal, I think is where we're the at. The new, now. new, new normal. The unprecedented time for games. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I feel like we're still in kind of a, a, of a bit of a black swan potential period. So like, I do feel like there's, there's within the next couple of years, we could see some other unexpected event, maybe not to the scale of COVID, but something that could still affect games drastically in some way or another. But at least we've had like a, a you know, a bit of mix, like some good news, some bad news in different ways. Um, but it, like, obviously COVID created some unrealistic expectations. Um, but it, it's been interesting to see because there was a lot of speculation around sort of like, uh, the the idea, you know, games were supposed to be somewhat recession proof, but then like we 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 like the App Store came out during pretty much the recession last time, so we didn't really get a test of is mobile part of that because of like the being more discretionary spending on in-app purchases, and now we've got like Web three as part of that, and it, it seems like now there's a lot of question marks around which aspects of gaming might be more resilient than others, uh, and because there's a broader like uh, area, right? This is not like where it's just the Atari crash. Right. Where it's just like pretty much one system for the most part. And like it crashes, it's done. Right. Like we're not really in that, that culture anymore. We're in a much, much broader game culture where it, at least some sectors should be resilient to severe downturns in some way or another, because you're not going to shut down the whole game industry unless people just suddenly just hate games. And I, I can't see that realistically happening, but I mean, Hey, we got a lot of UFO news these days, so you never know. Right. (laughs) The alien is like, no, no playing games. We'll find out the aliens actually are the people that are in control of Activision. That would actually make a lot more sense than uh, some of the decisions they make. But uh, we'll see when Microsoft acquires them, uh, whether or not. uh, (laughs) But uh, speaking of uh, uh, Zynga, I guess, of all people here, uh, coming out of of nowhere with finally a Web3 announcement. Uh, we, you know, when take two had acquired Zynga, uh, there was, you know, talk of web three stuff. This was kind of during a little bit of the heyday around web three, but then things got pretty quiet after that. Zynga didn't necessarily seem like they were like completely silent, right? They still had job listings for web three stuff. They were still clearly building something, but no one really knew what now they've kind of come out with something that, uh, in my, my eyes almost actually sparks more question marks than answers, but does, does show that they're doing something. So basically, what we had here is is Zynga announcing Sugartown with a series of of media like uh, some YouTube videos, website, uh, quickly launching a Discord and a Twitter, um, really trying to kind of like get attention out there as quick as possible. 
but being something very different than what we're used to seeing from Zynga. So this whole property kind of, uh, I guess, really, really looks very Yuga Labs-ish. Take some of the theming, things like that, uh, that we've seen from Yuga in terms of like the other side, uh, just the general Yuga Labs lore, if you want to call it that. There's there's sort of uh, like subculture that they've sort of built around the Bored Apes and other things like that. And, uh, and even looking carefully at it uh, through some of their media on their website and stuff like that, there's actually some what looks like pretty clear references to Yuga Labs properties that does make me think there could possibly actually be a legit tie-in here, uh, much like we saw uh, from Rec League uh, most recently when we talked about last week. Uh, there was like a picture of a bored ape with one of the characters. Uh, it looked like possibly in one of the pictures. There's references to the other side. Uh, with a question mark and some of the papers there. So there's just lots of little, what looks like Easter eggs that makes me think there might be some potential here. And and I think that's actually important to note because this is a situation where if it is tied to Yuga Labs, that actually then sort of justifies the style they're going for in a way that's like, okay, they're clearly marketing to that group of people, which in itself is already obvious, but if they've got the tie-in, they can kind of leverage that. But it does make me think then if, you know, Yuga Labs is doing tie-ins with them, tie-ins with Rec League, does it end up stretching itself too thin as sort of a marketing vehicle and stuff like that? Uh, but going to the game itself, we don't have a ton of deals, but it sounds like, again, pulling out of Yuga Labs playbook where it's like a bunch of mini games, supposedly. It's like, I don't think we'll see like a Dookie Dash kind of thing coming out of this, but maybe something somewhat, you know, at that level of sort of like small uh, mini games, things like that. And this is not really like typical Zynga style, right? This is, uh, they're, they're planning on sort of doing these for NFT holders, basically uh, explicitly stating they're kind of targeting Web3 users uh, with a hope to broaden out after that, but they're like really limiting it. And the part that really stri- like seemed uh, odd to me is Zynga is a company that's normally shooting for like a super wide funnel. They're trying to get everyone they can, broadest audience, you know, it was basically all of Facebook before, and then all of the app store, like, who can we get, like, you know, everyone and their parents. But this, on the other hand, very targeted. And in order to play these, it requires an NFT. And in typical NFT uh, style, 10,000 is is what they're limited to. And so the situation where you're literally capping your player base up front to 10,000 players and that's a very, like, in my opinion, a very anti-Zynga move. So this is an interesting thing that makes me wonder uh, who is Zynga, like, might actually be heading this. Like, they, they're calling the group ZW3, which is supposed to represent their sort of Web3 division. But it's like, now that they've been kind of absorbed by Take-Two to an extent, it's like, I'm not sure how their divisions work the same. Uh, obviously, this is a pretty far cry from Zynga Poker, right? Uh, it's not it's clearly not targeting mobile either. It's, it's clearly targeting more of like a desktop, at least to start with is the impression given and uh, overall just like a very interesting kind of strange play. And uh, you, you mentioned take two earlier uh, in transmedia and there is mention here of, you know, uh, trying to make some transmedia plays. They're trying to build this as an IP, much like we saw, you know, from board Ape trying to be very IP or even like pudgy penguins trying to be IP. So there's definitely a lot of like IP plays in the space, which makes sense. Like if NFTs are seen as collectibles, but again, uh, not Zynga's forte. It's not like they invented Farmville. They pretty much scooped it up. You know, like they're not that great at actually creating IP. So this is a, again, a very out of character play from them. And and I'm curious, like, you know, based off what you guys think about Zynga in general and take two and where this environment's at, like what could really be going on internally uh, with this sort of play? Um, I mean, they, they brought on their VP of uh, web three, what, like two years ago. I think it was. Um, 
So, uh, you know, this has probably been percolating in the background for a while, and, and maybe it's a case of, um, you know, they're just trying to get to the point where uh, if they look at monetizing their audience, they can just go, okay, we just want the whales. We don't want anybody else using up any of our server bandwidth. We just want the whales. Um, and, you know, and taking more of that approach where they're setting a, uh, you know, you must pay X amount of dollars if you want to play type of thing. So they already know that they're bringing in people of um, uh, a certain willingness to spend. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, uh, Zynga is about, you know, Farmville. They're with friends games, games that uh, reach, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, so this is, it certainly is, uh, I think, going to be a very interesting experiment for them. And it may be why they went so small with this in the beginning, because it is such an experiment for them. They don't, uh, you know, uh, corporately, they don't know how to market to, 10,000 people. They know how to market to 100 million people, but they don't know how to market to 10,000 people. Um, so I think it's, it's probably going to be a lot of corporate learning and, and you know, and, and Take-Two also doesn't have that breadth of experience in order to draw upon as well. So it, it certainly will be, in, I think, an interesting experiment and see how things turn out. Um, if they are indeed linked to Yuga, I think for them, that makes actually a lot of sense. You know, it gives them that opportunity to, to learn from teams that, you know, in the Web3 space that they've shown themselves of being able to, um, you know, put out product that people are very much interested in and have been very successful. Um, so, I, you know, where where it will end up, I think, is is really going to be a very interesting question because, yeah, from, from where they are right now and seeing how they approach it and where they grow. Yeah, you raised a great point, right? It's is whales only a viable 2023 strategy, right? Like whales only, you know, board apes feels very late 2021, right? It sort of feels like out of touch of the tenor of, uh, of late 2023, but we'll see, right? Like, are there high ARPU people left in this space? I mean, it is interesting to be like, Hey, we're limiting it to 10,000 players, but we're wanting 10,000 whales. Yep. And as you said, like, Maybe that is it. Maybe that is the more financial thing. It's like if we're in a situation where user acquisition is extremely difficult, right? They're they're like they're they know that, right? Zynga definitely yeah. is going to know that. Uh, maybe that maybe that's a play, like to say, mm-hmm. like maybe not for mobile, but maybe a play in general for user acquisition to say, hey, there's a somewhat captive audience without a lot of great games over here. They're clearly throwing money at Yuga stuff. It's not like it's gone to zero, right? It's clearly sustaining, and it's also then potentially even if it's not directly tied into Yuga, still kind of playing off that same culture and like kind of writing off the coattails of people spending. I mean, I feel like at this point, like you is kind of like almost like the Nike or something of, uh, of NFTs and, and like that sort of culture. So, I mean, I think it makes some sense, but it get, like you said, very much an experiment to be like, Hey, can we get away with it? And if we don't spend a ton of money on it and, and it doesn't work out, it maybe not a big deal. And I'm curious too, what take two is thinking about this whole thing where it's like, you know, I mean, Take-Two has some good IPs, right? So they're probably like, okay, well, you know, hey, if you guys can create a new IP that we can use, cool. But if not, then get back to Zynga Poker or something, get back to work. And, you know, maybe the learnings from this can can help uh, Rockstar, you know, figure out the, the all the cool crypto stuff for GTA 6, right? I, I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. I think uh, what they're actually going to do with this as it going forward, right? Unfortunately, their Discord, where they gave like a code to join their Discord, doesn't even work. So couldn't even find out more if they, like what they were telling people. Yeah, I think for me personally, I think it'll be interesting to see how 
how much does take two keep that at arm's length versus embracing it? You know, take two hasn't exactly jumped on to the web three bandwagon as much as, uh, you know, other companies like Ubisoft, um, you know, with their initial forays into web three and then, and then pulling back, seeing some of the backlash where they were trying to incorporate NFTs into some of their uh, existing franchises. And I think that really is going to be the key is that, um, Initially, as we're we're still dealing with that separation in terms of what people want to see in sort of their web two games versus their web three games, that um, you know that separation may exist. I think still for a little while, where where people focus on creating IP or creating experiences specifically for serving that existing web three audience, rather than trying to create something that acts as that bridge towards bringing web two players into. Uh, more of the Web3 space. I think that's a huge trend, right? And without being too shilly for Navic, right? If you go back and listen to the Navic conversation with John Linden, right? Like they've done a great job. Sort of, it's a Web2 game or a Web3 game, whichever one you want it to be. If you don't want it to be a Web3 game, it's not a Web3 game. And they don't really want to talk about it as a Web3 game, right? As opposed to like doubling down on Web3. And that sort of feels like the transitional path to me. like. If Web3 scares you, it's just a Web2 game. It's just a great, great Web2 game. If you want it to be Web3, it's Web3, right? Like, take your pick and and sort of like gently lead people in that direction. And, and, and again, I think if you go back and listen to Lyndon's conversation, you get like why they picked that path. Yeah. And I, I definitely do see that. It's, you know, in my mind, it's better to say it's a game. There is monetization that is, yep. you know, reflective of Web two or Web three, but you know, I would never actually even use those terms. Right, right. It's, it's a, game. a game first and foremost. How you want to play inside that game? How do you want to, you know, spend your money inside that game? We'll leave that up to you. But first and foremost, it's a game experience. And that's the, that's the funny thing is that, like that's the opposite here. This first oh, and yeah. foremost, it's not yeah. a game. Yeah. Right? First exactly. and foremost, it's it's something to buy to be part of a club, and then play some games in the clubhouse while you're hanging out. Right? Like it's more like a deck of cards in the clubhouse, like mini game kind of thing. And that's why it reeks of 2021 to me. But we'll see. <laughs> I mean, it does make sense when you're talking about IP, though. Like if you think about. Um, new IPs and trying to bring over old IPs. You look at Facebook, uh, when Facebook gaming was a thing, you know, it created new IPs, right? Mm -hmm. There was Mafia Wars, Farmville, all these things that weren't old IPs that were brought over and trying to bring over old IPs didn't work super great, right? And the same thing happened with mobile. Like we take two even brought over some of their their, uh, games or try to bring them over to mobile. And like EA as well, trying to bring over the premium franchises and stuff. And everyone kind of learned like, "Eh, maybe we should create some new stuff for mobile. And then you, you know, you had stuff like Angry Birds come out of it. And, and so maybe this is the uh, same case. Obviously, Web3 is technically not a, uh, a platform same way. But then again, Facebook kind of wasn't either. Like, So it'll be interesting to see if that ends up kind of being the dominant play, like lesson learned from the last few platforms. It's just, hey, let's just start from scratch. Let's let's throw some stuff out there that we think is cool, some neat ideas. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I guess that goes back to the discussion last week as well around whether or not it makes sense for Rec League to not even be based off an IP developed by a company that traditionally makes most of their games off IP. Uh, so it's, I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because every aspect of this, I feel like is outside of Zynga's wheelhouse altogether. And it, like one more of them that I didn't even mention was the community management aspect, right? Zynga comes from like social games, as we all know, were anti-social games, really. They weren't 
social games at all. And mobile had basically no social component whatsoever, uh, despite being literally a communication device. Uh, so it's, it's a situation where Zynga, I mean, to my knowledge, doesn't really have a lot of experience in quality community management. And the Web3 aspect, especially the target platform they're going for, is extremely community-centric, and they can't even get their passwords working correct for Discord. So this seems like maybe a little risky. I, I will say, though... Uh defending Zynga a little bit on the social side. Um, they're with friends games uh, with the chat functionality inside. There actually were very much social games. Like there were people that use those games uh, to stay in contact with relatives and with friends. Very true. Uh, very true. So, so I'll, I'll, I will say that Zynga I will give them a pass on the entirely. with <laughs> Yeah, they yeah. weren't entirely without hope around. So Absolutely, yeah, yeah, very true. I mean, there was always a social aspect to them, right? To to some extent, but it, it wasn't a community aspect. I guess is what I was yeah. really driving at. Like they've never done the community management thing, and I feel like it's a very interesting, like sort of opposite thing because, uh, and some of this is due to Discord as well. But the just mobile games have like no community at all. Like forums basically died out pretty much. I remember so often wanting to just find other people who played a game to like hang out with a former guild or something or talk about like how to play the game or whatever. There was just nothing most of the time and forums were pretty abandoned and there was no real like integration. There wasn't even like a lot of chat stuff to like, you know, game of war fire age started really like pushing the, the, the benefit of that sort of chat stuff uh, with the translation and things like that across culture. And then a lot more guild stuff also happened to, to like eventually build that. But we still like, most of those guilds are still running their guilds off of Discord. Like even to this yeah. day, I go to play a game. I join a guild. Almost always there's like a Discord link in the uh, the description for the guild or like they paste it to you. And so it's like, it's all kind of offloaded in, in obviously in the Web3 world as well. Uh, and it's to the point where like, I, I don't think Discord's really prepped to handle this. Uh, well, I've seen just continuous hack after continuous hack because I'm in most of these games, Discords for Web3, and I, I see a lot of them taken over and hacked pretty frequently where you're just like seeing all these messages posted, deleted, posted, deleted, posted, deleted, like a war, like all weekend. Just saw it the other day with uh, with another game, and it's just... Uh, and I feel like after seeing what happened with the password thing with this, like I, I feel like Zynga's might, might be stepping in it a little uh, unless they bring on some people that are that are experiencing this, I did see job listings previously, like for some Web three people. Um, so they're clearly looking to hire people with some experience. I don't know about the, the community management aspect, but definitely seems like an area where they could probably use some help. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's really reflective of ease of use, right? Like if you're playing a computer game, the ability to hop onto a Discord channel, have it running in a separate window, and you know being able to type away, fantastic. That you know getting that sort of ease of use of communication, but trying to get that, trying to replicate that inside a, a mobile game where, you know, you're playing probably just for a couple of minutes uh, and trying to, you know, and you you can't swap between the game you're playing and then, you know, having a keyboard up. So it, it does. I don't know if you guys have ever played with anyone too with voice chat uh, over mobile. Uh, you hear a lot of fumbling, a lot of wind sounds, a oh, lot yeah. of like, you know, smacking sounds. It's, it's really, really awkward. And so it's like, as a platform, it's, I feel like really struggled with communication just in general, like over the years. I don't, I don't know that that's a solved thing, but it, you know, at least like a lot of the, you know, the, the noise reduction and stuff on headsets has gotten better. So maybe there's, maybe there's hope for it in the future. Maybe we'll have some AI thing that'll handle it, but uh, I don't think it'll handle it for Zynga. So yeah, I guess this is a kind of wait and see situation. Yeah. You'll have Elon Musk's uh, brain right. implants to be able <laughs> to use communication on mobile. Yeah. 
please let's <laughs> let's get that going man like although i don't most people on mobile i don't want to know what they're thinking so maybe maybe not like yeah, let's 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 have a uh, white list instead of a, of a lock list on that one but uh speaking of new tech moving forward cool ideas netflix trying to push into the cloud space a little bit potentially here with some game streaming and a virtual controller yeah um so it's certainly a very interesting uh, last little bit for Netflix and around news and a little bit of confusion in that. Because um, first off, it started off with a news bit that there was a Netflix game controller appearing in the App Store and stating that it was to control games that are played on your TV, which certainly was confusing because, well, Netflix didn't have any games that you could play on your TV. And and when people first you know, initially contacted Netflix about it, um, they originally just responded with, well, we've got some Netflix games in beta and didn't really talk anything more about it. Um, but shortly after that, it, they did come out and say that there was a limited beta test happening uh, with a small number of subscribers in Canada and in the UK. Uh, and that there were two games that are part of the beta, uh, specifically the, the narrative adventure game Oxenfree by Night School Studio, which was a studio that uh, Netflix purchased in 2021, I believe it was. And a brand new title, uh, Molehue's Mining Adventure, which uh, supposedly is a game mining arcade game. Uh, sorry, a gem mining arcade game, uh, which is not currently available as a mobile title. So it was something that was very much created for this type of experience. Um, and the beta test uses the Netflix game controller. So uh, in order to play the games, you have to use the Netflix game controller. They don't so apparently support Bluetooth controllers. So even though I live in Canada, unfortunately, I was not one of the small number of subscribers that was chosen to be able to play the games, but I am interested in trying out. But for me, um, this really does bring a couple of big questions to my mind. Uh, first off, maybe the smaller of the two questions, um, or, or maybe not, uh, in going with a virtual, basically a virtual controller, and that it's a, you know, you're using your cell phone in order to control a game. Um, for me, that has some big challenges in that, you know, when you're controlling, you know, you're using that virtual controller on a mobile game, you're looking at the screen, you're looking at where your fingers are. You don't have any of that worry so much about a misplaced finger or thumb, you know, are you actually on the controllers and that? versus having that split focus between the television and your screen. And are you going to be able to effectively control that game? You know, where games where uh, microseconds count in order, you know, you're hitting the right button, you know, you're having an accuracy level uh, that's really important for some games and not having that tactile feedback of being able to feel like which button are you on? You know, the, the fact that they have, uh, you know, certain, uh, certain features on the button so you can feel, you know, just by having your thumb on, you know that you're on a particular button on a controller. Those are there for a reason. So you know where your thumbs are. So you don't yep. have to look at your hands. And so for me, you know, it's, it's, it kind of speaks a little bit to a, well, we got to try something quick, fast, easy, cheap, you know, fail fast. Let's just put a virtual controller out to give this a shot. Um, but in the end, will that end up actually, uh, impeding or or you know uh, contributing to a, not as great as an experience as players could have. Um, what are what are your guys' thoughts on that? Like I personally think it's it is going to be a challenge for players to so having that that virtual uh, input device rather than just going Bluetooth. 
quick one right before you you jump in there, Jonathan, is is to me that that sounds like they they did the trivia crack game, and this totally sounds like an opportunity for a you don't know Jack or a seen it kind of game uh, because you don't know Jack already does the phone thing with the TV and the phone, and seen it seems like a great it's, it's movies and TV like seems yeah. like like a great fit for having the buzzer and stuff that you don't need to look at, but. Just throwing that out there. And those are great where it's a one button thing where you can have basically the entire screen being a button. There is no missing that button, right? But, you know, the images that we've seen is, you know, it's very reminiscent of the Nintendo uh, GameCube controller where, you know, it's four buttons, you know, three in an arc, one in the center, and you got a couple more buttons on the side. And I'm going to guess like a virtual stick in order to be able to move around. Um, But, you know, again, you don't, you know, if you're looking up at the screen, you don't know where your fingers are exactly inside those space. So for me, that's uh, going to be an interesting thing to see. how. It works. I think those are all huge challenges. And to me, it feels like Netflix trying to work around what are some of its inherent disadvantages in this space, right? So its advantages is it's got this incredible subscriber base who have a willingness to pay and they have a lot of data around those people, right? And so arguably, they've got some sort of a flywheel but they don't have a gaming point, point of entry, right? So like, do you go through app stores and like pay those taxes? Do you go to console stores and pay those taxes? Do you want to be in the console business? Are you looking for like tie rates between consoles? And so it appears like on paper, hey, a virtual controller is the perfect way around that to, to build the direct-to-consumer relationship with the screen we already have, right? But you bring up all the actual just sort of like hardware interface shortcomings with that right which really limit you into casual games right like the only games are in any way like like, you know Devin you just brought up like the way where it's the least amount of problem right if you're into some sort of trivia game you really you really don't actually have an issue with a virtual right, they already, phone they've controller already done it with the trivia and, and, and latency doesn't quite matter so much and fine motor control doesn't quite matter so much right but if you're any kind of like quote unquote, real gaming, it's a completely subpar interface. And and so again, it feels like one of those things in a boardroom, which is like, we've got 100 million, you know, television sets in the US, you know, and everyone has an iPhone, and we just give a virtual controller, like we've got an installed base of 100 million people. But there's an interface hardware shortcoming, right? And it limits the kind of like games and titles you could put in there. And what Netflix is trying to do in this space still isn't clear to me. And, and maybe it's not clear to them. Maybe they're testing a whole bunch of things, you, you, you know, but like, are they trying to build casual games? Are they trying to build core games? Who are, which part of their audience are they trying to speak to the younger part, the older part? Are they just trying to get like greater share of time? You know, I remember that, that classic old Netflix, you know, I think it was a Reed Hastings quote. We don't compete with, you know, Warner Brothers. We compete with sleep. Right. This idea that they sort of compete with anything else. Right. Like anything and everything else. And like if they just get more game time, like, you know, I remember a point when when like Activision stopped reporting and earnings reports, units sold and went to like DAUs and MAUs. Right. So it's like Netflix just going to go to like, you know, hours spent with Netflix. Right. And if we can peg on another 300 million hours spent with Netflix with games like that's accretive, right? It, it, it's churn. Per, like, I can't tell. Like, you know, Amazon and Apple seem to be in a lot of businesses because it's, it's, it's churn preventive, right? So is gaming churn preventive for Netflix? Is gaming ARPU increasive, right? Like, is gaming a standalone p and I'm still not sure, right? 
For me, I like, the part that I wonder about is that do they see games as being well, like a couple of things that like you have Netflix uh, subscribers who will uh, subscribe for a month, they watch the show, and then they leave. And then they come back, and then they leave. Right. Where, uh, whereas if they get a game that they really enjoy, something that could you know entertain them for hundreds and hundreds of hours, will they be less likely to go through right. that on and off? So that's cycle, gaming to reduce right? churn, right? Yeah, gaming to yeah. reduce churn. Um, but uh, you know. I think for me, one of the one of the biggest questions is, um, does this actually then change the types of games that they that they start making? Because, you know, if you're making a mobile game, you're making a game that you know your players could be, uh, you know, playing with for thirty seconds or a minute. You know, are they waiting in line for the bus? Are they? It was the usual thing. Are they just playing it in the bathroom? Um, and that's not saying that there aren't games where people will sit down and spend hours playing, but the the general mindset is generally the mobile games are games that you can play in in short bursts. But yeah. if you're going on, you know, taking the console or PC route, there's an intentionality for going and playing. Like you have already decided that I'm sitting down and I'm going to spend a set amount of time engaging in this activity. And that does allow for more mid-core or hardcore types of games. So, you know, are we seeing um, a potential change in terms of the types of games that they're looking at making from, uh, you know, the more traditional or more casual games they're seeing inside the mobile site space into um, more mid-core type games? You see, uh, you know, uh, more like the console or, or PC side of things. Um, but then you get right back to the, but then you've got the worst controller for that type of experience right. that you're suggesting. I mean- so. I can't imagine, like, say, for example, the Stranger Things games they've had on mobile are doing anything to increase, you know, viewership of of Stranger Things on Netflix and stuff like that. I don't. I think their current mobile strategy isn't doing much for them personally. I mean, it's it's hard, right, if they're not releasing any data, like to to back that up one way or the other. But having looked at, you know, at their their mobile games even somewhat recently to kind of see which ones were even interesting to play, it, it just it's just really a scattershot thing. And the the problem is they're not they're not set up to really port those to this new TV thing where they're clearly trying to do different stuff so like they can't even leverage what they've already spent on but i do see a huge opportunity here and i was kind of hinting at it earlier which is uh, a little bit of multi-person spectacle and so what i mean is that like so what what i because i always play all the stuff that they put out that's game like because i think it's fun to experiment with and uh they did actually have a full actual game on there where they ported the the telltale minecraft story mode so they did port an actual game if you want to call a choose your own adventure and actual game. It depends on you know, personal taste, I guess there, but, uh, the, the, the opportunity like with, uh, so like man versus wild was an interesting opportunity, right? Where it's, it's like a choose your own adventure, but there's a certain amount of spectacle to it where I actually will play it with the in-laws in a situation where we're all kind of like group voting, but it's not a mechanism that's really set up for group voting. Someone has to control the controller, but imagine now you've got the phone aspect. Uh, again, like I was kind of hit to get it with the, the you don't know Jack method or like, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, trivia stuff or whatever. A situation where there's now like multi-person interaction with your TV through Netflix in a situation where you're looking at your phone to interact and you're looking at the TV to see the result. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for the way Netflix has succeeded on some stuff, like even Bandersnatch. Imagine Bandersnatch where everyone watching can vote for a choice and discuss it. Now imagine you start porting some more social games. Imagine uh, Cards Against Humanity ported to the TV where the TV can be the presenter 
player of the the black card, and everyone else can kind of play their cards, uh, and and then one per- like and everyone can kind of vote on the answer. Or imagine like werewolf kind of game on the TV. Like there's lots of opportunities for more social experiences where the TV plays a central role, and that's what you don't know Jack demonstrated was that yeah. if like because you don't know Jack existed on consoles or like whatever, but they're using the TV as like a central focus for a group of people. So there's a presenter or like a central thing to focus on. And I think that's where Netflix could be an advantage. Cause imagine you go over to someone else's house, you don't have Netflix. Cause you're like, ah, Netflix sucks. Now I don't watch anything on there. You go over to someone else's house and then you're playing these great party games with them. Like on their TV, and you're like, man, maybe I should get Netflix. Like Netflix is like kind of fun now, like it, because it's an opportunity, a social opportunity to show yeah. Netflix off. Now uh, imagine they also, sorry, one last thing is, is they throw in like games for couples. You got the whole Netflix and chill kind of thing. And you've got games just targeting couple so it doesn't have to be a, a party situation where you're just like what should we watch i don't know let's play this game that's like meant for couples either like literally like a romantic kind of thing or you know just a game that's fun for two people to play i think there's yeah. some opportunities here personally I, and i'm not sure that the the stranger things games are really meant to be a stranger thing you play the game and then you go watch the show i think it's more the extension of the brand the other way so i wonder right you know with the games you do have that opportunity of ex, of <clears throat> owning the experience more than just the show itself so if you think they're not monetizing the game is the problem they're not monetized well yeah i think they're looking at as an an indirect monetization that they're keeping a subscriber in place so the reducing of the the churn side of things um but if you think of to uh like a number of movie theaters they have uh you know quiz shows that are quiz games that happen you know you download an app on your phone and then everyone in the audience is playing these games before the show starts and yeah, so you have that opportunity to interact with the the content before the content starts, and so yeah, I can see very much see the same things. You could have you know the easy ones would be well you know here's trivia about a particular movie. Now I'm going to watch the movie. Um, you know I can see uh, execs in some movie uh, or some. Um, Entertainment studios going all right. So this is what we're going to do. We're then going to have a quiz show after the movie and see what people think of all the different characters and everything. Get that you know in depth uh, feedback on something Focus in the shape of a game. Place. Yeah, but it's a game rather than you know an ABC selection of which character did you like, which character did you not like, what did you think of the character growth path. Um, so Nielsen you know, presents think, a trivia game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, you know, I think it certainly is, will be new opportunities to, to, um, you know, uh, expand what a, an entertainment property is. Is it just a movie? Well, no, it's not just a movie. It's also an interactive component. It's the movie. It's you know, a whole bunch of different things in, in one place. I think it does give new opportunities in order to, you know, for those, uh, experiences for, for players. Yeah, I'd love to know what the traction's been on the stuff that they have. Obviously, they had the ones that were like, you know, really well known, like Bandersnatch. I think maybe Man vs. Wild probably did okay. But if you like look through their selection, they had like a ton of ones for kids specifically, like yeah. to like try and attract them to different ways. And like they've they've seemed to like shotgun a lot of it. The problem is we don't really know, like, because they're not really telling us what aspects of that work. Cause I'd be, I'd be very interested to see like, where's our, where's our, you know, data.ai or, or steam charts or something for these, these sorts of things to know, like just to kind of be able to see where the direction should be going. Cause they're a very analytics driven company has always been my impression that yeah. they've got the data and they're using that to drive these decisions. Yeah. Like the public side is they'll, they certainly let people know what the downloads are. I mean, I think the last I saw asphalt was the number one downloaded game. 
Um, but they certainly have the analytics in terms of, well, what are the games that are actually keeping players playing? And I can guarantee it's not asphalt. It's something else. Um, yeah, I mean, it all seems so, I'm going to go back to the scattershot and I'm not clear. Like Devin, like you mentioned kids, you know, in our house, like the child share of time on Netflix is zero, right? The child share of time is other places. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's, again, the strategy is not clear. This, the scattershot approach to things, though, is very similar to what you saw with Xbox when they first launched, PlayStation when they first launched. The thing that they need to do is basically cover their bases when it comes to various genres inside experience so that they can at least say, well, you do want to try us over Apple Arcade or the Google Play experience or things like that because... Yes, we do offer something for kids. We offer something for adults. You know, we we do offer something for everybody. Um, the biggest challenge, you know, as you do that initial scatter shot, is getting the quality examples yeah, in yeah. each of those because it's an unknown platform. They're not sure, you know, from a game developer side, it's like, well, you know, what does that mean for me? Yes, I'll get some money up front, but I'm not going to see a big back end on it. Um, you know, there there certainly are some some challenges in trying to get that breadth, but that's why it is a bit of a scattershot at the beginnings because they need to be able to say, well, we offer a comprehensive selection of games. Could you imagine if like, you know, they, they're, they're not running ads right now, right? Like, but they find, you know, actually we have an opportunity to monetize through in-app purchases in these interactive games where you can purchase content, like additional content or whatever. Like, I, I do wonder if we could see they, they find an opportunity to do some level of, you know, in use financialization that they can't seem to do with their games. They can't really do it. I mean, I feel like they eventually go to ads. Let's be honest, just because that's what cables promise was, was no ads. And look where they ended up. Look where most of the, uh, the streamings ended up. It's, it's feels a little inevitable, but at the same time, like maybe there's some alternative revenue streams, at least from some of the audience that maybe can slow that down without them having to constantly just raise the price of subscription. Oh, it feels yeah. it feels so inevitable. I mean, the whole interesting thing about how the ARPU on the seven dollars plus ads was higher than the base ten dollar no ads, right? I, I mean, you, you know, the interesting thing about all this sort of fallout we're seeing in the sector, right, is everybody's raising prices, everybody's adding ad tiers. Like those two things are inevitable. All this free stuff is going to be less free, and all this ad free spaces are going to become ad filled. Like those those two things are are inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, or and it may be a case of they look at what are different ways they can incorporate ads. So instead of necessarily being uh, ads that are you know take place at breakpoints inside the game, do you actually incorporate the ads into the game so that they're not as disruptive in terms of flow? Let's um, just get full on ad for games there. like we used to have in the Flash era. Just bring that back. Just bring back uh, what was it? Seven Up Spot. Do you remember but, that? Yeah, Cool Spot. Let's bring back cool Pepsi spot, Man yeah. from from PlayStation. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, Some real classics. Like yep. There we go. <laughs> Why not? This rate. I don't know if you guys uh, have a Roku as well. Like, if you've ever tried to go through uh, the channels and you can find there's some attempts at games. And of course, it's about as awkward as you could imagine trying to use a Roku remote to like play a game on your TV. And it's like multiply that times 10 for trying to play it on your phone screen instead. And it's like, I think it's pretty obvious. Like, if you, if you are one of those TVs to just see for yourself how awkward that whole experience can be. Even if you've done the, um, like the trivia crack ones or those other ones where you have to make choices on a timer 
it can be pretty awkward to even use that interface to like select something fast enough. That's why I feel like you know, selecting on your phone, for example, like having a personal selection, those kind of things does somewhat overcome those issues. But again, as you guys said, like that's that's a pretty limited like spectrum of games. And, and I mean, I guess we'll see, right? Like Netflix doesn't always like really like tell too much about their future strategy because a lot of it's still experimental, but they're also very like that shotgun approach. Let's try a bunch of stuff and then let's look at the numbers because, you know, at the end of the day, as long as people don't unsubscribe from us doing it, then it's worth trying it, right? Because like, that's the thing, right? If they're getting the subscriber numbers and they don't lose people over these experiments, then it's like, you know, as long as they don't spend too much money on them, they, they manage that budget. It actually seems like a pretty good way to, to do it uh, because they're like, oh, we've got this X amount of budget for content. We can decide how we want to spend it on a bunch of different things and then try stuff. I mean, it's better than them just constantly looking at, well, everyone's watching full house episodes. Let's just do fuller house. You know, those kind of analytics. Obviously, some of those work, right? They're just like, hey, everyone watch Adam Sandler movies. Just do an Adam Sandler movie. Yep. Uh, th- those kinds of things have worked for them, right? But like, I don't know how that'll translate over to games. And I'm really interested to see how their methodology, because, you know, mobile games being so, you know, analytics driven, how that would work in like such a content sort of centric one. And obviously live ops could be really interesting for like, TV-based content that's streaming on the fly. I don't know. A lot of opportunities here to see. Uh, but I imagine we'll be back on this topic once yep. we know a little bit more about it. I, I doubt it'll turn out that it's Savvy Games funding it and it's a Lord of the Rings thing and all that. But uh, we'll, we'll be back again for this, I'm sure. But in the meantime, uh, I want to thank you guys for some fantastic conversation. A lot of interesting questions answered and probably twice as many asked uh, that we'll, I'm sure, get back to throughout the year because a lot of cool stuff happening. And that's what we're here for, to highlight that stuff, to talk about it and dig in. And of course, uh, thanks to you, listener, for, of course, sticking around for this and hopefully, you know, past and future episodes as well. If you haven't already, you know, make sure to also check out our digest, mostly because we've been really, really cranking up the content uh, to make sure that your inbox is bursting with uh, your backlog of reading now at this point. So so definitely make sure to get on that. Including and of course, email us as well. Including a great article on subscriptions. There you go. There was one that actually just came out earlier this week talking a lot. Very, about very appropriate. So, so yeah. definitely uh, a lot, a lot of cool stuff. So make sure to check that out. And of course, you know, uh, our, as I always mention, our, our mailbag email as well, uh, podcast at novic.co. Any feedback, any ideas? Hey, if you've got some ideas for what Netflix should be doing uh, for their games, like, please share. Like, we'd love to hear uh, ideas out there as well great feedback we've got some great questions as well uh, on some of our previous stuff we've discussed that we try and always get back at so uh thanks you know for all those questions and future ones as well in the meantime though enjoy your weekend everybody and uh hopefully we'll see you at gran turismo if you enjoyed today's episode whether on youtube or your favorite podcast app make sure to like subscribe comment or give a five-star review and if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.